Welcome back, everyone, as we continue our studies in Deuteronomy with Torah portion Ki Teitze. And I know you're all wondering, hey, what happened to your beard? Well, to make a long story short, I suffered a, um, a beard trimming mishap. I got this new beard trimmer, and I should have tried it out on somebody else first. But our dog died last fall. So anyways, I, sometimes you just have to start over, and that's what's happening here. So let's just have that out of the way and get into our study. Kitetse. This is uh, an amazing passage, and it contains more commandments than any other Torah portion in the Torah. It contains, some say, 72, others say 74 commandments. And there are 31 different topics. It's just all over the place. So during the Thursday update, I sent you a question and asked, what is the theme of this Parsha? Parsha is a Hebrew word that means portion. So sometimes I use one term, sometimes the other. So what is the theme of this portion? And uh, a few of you got back with me, and you said, respect for others. And that is exactly right. So if that is what you were thinking, you can give yourselves a pat on the back because that is what all of these commandments have to do with, respecting others. But there's a catch. I want to show you a graphic here, and I want you to keep this graphic in your minds throughout the teaching and long after this teaching is over. I want you to carry it with you always. I want you to keep this graphic always, always, always in your minds, every day, every moment of the day. And this is what the graphic is about. When you read the opening words of this Torah portion, it's ki teitse lemilchama, when you go out to war. It's not say if you go out to war, but say when you go out to war. So the Torah portion begins with war. And if you go to the end of the Torah portion, this is what you read. Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who are lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when Adonai your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that Adonai your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So, the Torah portion begins with war. The Torah portion ends with war. And in between are these 70 plus commandments concerning respect for others. Now let that sink in for a moment. Because only God in his utter brilliance could put this together just the way he did. And one of the things he's teaching us here is that To respect others, and even more to love others, is a matter of constant warfare, constant warfare against Amalek. 
you know, my war and your war is not against the culture. It's not against COVID. It's not against politicians or China or anything else. Our war is against Amalek. We need to understand Amalek. You have to understand something. Amalek shows up in Exodus 17. And there's one battle, just one, one battle recorded in the Torah where Amalek attacked Israel and God instructed Moses to call Joshua. And the first time Joshua's name is mentioned is there in the chapter in the context of this battle against Amalek. And he says, have Joshua take the men out and lead them. And Moses, you're to be up above and hold your staff above your head. Hold it up in your hands. And when he did that, Amalek was weak. And when he lowered the staff, because he got tired, Amalek was strong. And, um, and so they had this battle and defeated Amalek. But it was the only battle. But there, God told them that you are to have this battle against Amalek forever. Forever. It goes on and on and on. And what does it tell us about Amalek here in Deuteronomy 25? It says, Amalek did not fear God. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And if we are to have respect for others, we have to fight Amalek. Now, what is Amalek? The name Amalek means people of licking up. Every time we see Amalek, it represents the fleshly appetites, doing things my way, doing what I want to do. Because if you are always doing what you want to do, you'll have a little room for respect for other people and what they want. You'll be wanting to focus on serving yourself rather than serving others. And you'll notice that underneath this respect for others, I've uh, have drawn a stone, like a foundation stone, because respect for others all rest on a foundation of fear of God. If you don't have fear of God, like Amalek did not have fear of God, you'll have no respect for others, just as Amalek had no respect for others. You see, we're all made in God's image. And for me to respect the image of God I see in you, I must have a fear of God. But if I don't fear God, then who are you? You're not made in anybody's image. You are just someone who's competing for the pleasures of this world with me. And you might occupy something in a place that I want, and you need to be pushed aside. But when there's a healthy fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, then there's going to be respect for his image every time I see it in someone else. So these commandments to show respect for others are issued by the God who created you and created everyone else. And if we don't have a fear of him, the one who's issuing the commandments, we will not fulfill these commandments. We'll always see others as an impediment, our own desires, or competitors for what we want. Now, what's interesting is that we're commanded in this Torah portion to always be at war with Amalek, to fight it always. And yet, in the same Torah portion, we're told not to hate Egypt. Uh, you'll find that over in chapter 23. And um, 
<clears throat> if you turn there, it's verses 7 and 8 in an English Bible, but verses 8 and 9 in the Hebrew Bible. And it says, you shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of Adonai. Now, this just doesn't make sense. Amalek fights one battle against Israel. Only one's recorded in the Torah. And they lose the battle. Israel wins. And yet we are told to fight Amalek our entire lives forever. But Egypt enslaved Israel for centuries. The king of Egypt issued a command that the baby boys of the Jews should be thrown into the Nile River and drowned. The Egyptians made the lives of the Israelites so difficult with hard labor and with beatings and uh, this horrible slavery and death. And yet we're told, you don't hate the Egyptians. In fact, in the third generation... They can join, they can convert and marry into the people of Israel. Why why is this? The reason for this is that Egypt is an historical people who at a time in history persecuted the Jews. And when that time of persecution was over, it was over. It was done. But Amalek isn't a physical enemy. Amalek is a spiritual enemy that every single day is attacking and wanting us, wanting to defeat us. So you've got a choice in front of you, and we're going to look at what that choice is in a moment. But there's something I want you to remember in regards to Amalek, and it's this. Walking in the Spirit was agonizing to the Israelites. Walking in the Spirit was agonizing to the Israelites. But they were honest about it. You see, as long as Israel was in the wilderness, what led them? Fire by night, a cloud by day. God's Shekinah dwelling within the tabernacle. They're being led by God's spirit, by God's presence. And they found it hateful. They found it agonizing. They did not like about it. They did not like it one bit. And look what they say. In Numbers 11, verses 4 to 6, it says, Now the rabble that was among them cultivated a craving. Whoops. Cultivated a craving. So many times, cravings in our lives are cultivated by others, the representatives of Amalek, and we finally decide we really want something that a moment ago we never crossed our minds as wanting. But the rabble cultivated a craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had flesh to eat. We remember. We remember. Remember what? The fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. They've forgotten the slavery. The cucumbers, the melons, and those are so sweet. The leeks, the onions, and the garlic. That's so spicy. But now 
our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So what happened is the rabble cultivated a craving and they began to remember. So the battle was internal. When this craving was cultivated, when it was suggested by the rabble that, you know what, this manna is horrible. Remember what we used to eat? And the people said, yeah, I do. Is the battle physical? Is it external? Not at all. It's all internal. It's in the mind. And then the manna that they had seemed like nothing to them. This is nothing. This manna is nothing. Remember this. When we don't have... I can't read my own writing. When what we don't have becomes something in our minds... When what we don't have becomes something in our minds, then what we do have becomes nothing in our eyes. When what we don't have becomes something in our minds, then what we do have becomes nothing in our eyes. And so when they began to think about the food they used to have, the flesh that they were hungry for, and what they used to have in Egypt, then what they did have, this spiritual bread, this manna from heaven that God graciously gave six days a week, it became nothing. There's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Yuck. The day before, they weren't complaining about manna, but now they are. So you see, when Amalek attacked in Exodus 17, we see this physical battle. But here in Numbers, which took place a little over a year later, this is Amalek again. But this is spiritual Amalek. This is spiritual Amalek developing a fleshly craving. And as a result, they reject God's provision. So let's remember our graphic. Respect for others must be founded upon a healthy fear of God. But there's constant war to get us to not fear God. Remember what it says about Amalek. They did not fear God. They had no fear of God. And Amalek wants to win you over to where you don't fear God either. And when you don't fear God, you're not going to respect others. Now, when Yeshua was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, well, to love God and then to love your neighbor. But the way love should manifest is a respect for others and a fear of God. And we must constantly be at war to maintain that mindset. And if we don't, Amalek wins. You know, I was at uh, breakfast yesterday morning with a friend I, I get together with oh, two or three times a year. And he's a, a strong believer, and he's a member of a very large church in the area. But it's always fun to catch up, because I don't know the people he knows, and he doesn't know the people I know. And, but we often compare notes, and we come to the same conclusions. We see things much the same way. And uh, I shared with him the phenomena I see 
and have seen for a long time, but it's become more pronounced in my mind. And that's the phenomena of people who call themselves Christians, call themselves believers, and they're practicing believers. But they seem to be in two groups. They're the ones who are always talking about God, and they're the others who never talk about God. Now, both of them can be serving in their communities and um, studying the scriptures, doing quiet times, involved in Bible studies, talk about theology, talk about serving in their community and holding positions in their community. But one group talks about God all the time. Another group doesn't. And he said he had seen the exact same thing. And... uh, And we both agreed that in these last days, this difference is more pronounced than ever. By the way, you may be wondering what this this rectangle is. Um, You know, we're commanded to blot out the name of Amalek. Well, when a Torah scribe is writing the Torah and he cuts a new quill pen from a feather, he doesn't dip that he can start writing the Torah again. He has to test out the point of the quill. So what he does... He writes the name Amalek in Hebrew and makes sure the pen's working well, and then he blots it out. He does that on a little scrap of parchment. So even a scribe, as he practices a, a new, a new quill and he's writing a Torah scroll, he's blotting out the name Amalek. I wanted to suggest to you, you have some kind of an exercise as well, something physical you can do. that will remind you each day to blot out the name of Amalek, to blot out the enemy Amalek in your life each day. But going on, love of God. Look at Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. This is David writing. And look what he says. As a deer pants for the streams of water, so pants my soul, or so my soul pants for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Like a deer, it's dying of thirst. It's panting. Its tongue is hanging out. It has to have water or die. He says, my soul is like that for you, God. I have to have you or I'm going to die. My soul pants for you. I want to encounter you. I want to know you, not just know about you. I need you. I want you. My soul thirsts for you. But not all believers are like that. You know, people talk about the things that they love. When you're with a group of people, if they love cars, cars will come up as a topic of conversation. They love gardening that comes up. If they love money, that comes up. If they love sports, they'll be talking about sports. So when you're with a group of believers and God does not come up as a topic, you really have to wonder, do these people really love God? Do they have a soul that pants after him? Is he the center of their focus, of their interests, and of their desires? And if God isn't, then maybe instead of blotting out the memory of Amalek, they have either blotted out God from their memories 
or they never really knew him. The things of God are attractive, and it's easy to become very attracted to the things of God. But people can become involved in the things of God and never really thirst for God himself. I was going through some papers this week, and I came across an article that is almost 25 years old. And I must have shared it in a teaching long ago, but it's called, I Pray the Lord My Mind to Keep. I'm going to read just a, a part of this. But this is written by a, by a Christian believer. And he says, a child can love God. In some ways, a child can become our teacher in doing it. But there are also adult ways to love God, and these take some time to learn. Adults learn to love God considerately. Adults learn to love God with all the powers of an educated mind. Adults bring to God a love that has all the law and the prophets compacted in it. Quote, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind, unquote, says our master in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. In other words, you shall love God with everything you have and everything you are. Everything, every longing, every endowment, each of your intellectual gifts, any athletic talent or computer skill, all capacity for delight, every good thing that has your fingerprints on it. Take all this, says Jesus, and refer it to God. Take your longing and long for God. Take your creaturely comforts and riches and endow God. Take your eye for beauty and appreciate God. With your heart and soul and mind, with all your needs and splendors, make a full turn toward God. That is the great commandment. And Deuteronomy and Matthew give it to us in two versions. In Matthew's gospel, a lawyer asks Jesus, what may have uh, been a trick question? Which is the greatest commandment? Jesus replies by quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, words that were on the lips of pious Jews morning and evening, words as familiar as, now I lay me down to sleep. Jesus responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Not with all your strength, but with all your mind. Deuteronomy says strength, Yeshua says mind. Here's a change worth a little gasp. What if a four-year-old prayed one night, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my brain to keep? You would notice. Love God with all your mind, says our Lord. Take it as a charter for Christian intellectual life. What is the project for Christians engaged in this pursuit? What is the big idea within it? The simple answer is that we are trying to become better lovers. We want to love God with all our mind. Of course, we want to offer our hearts to God, and we want to do it promptly and sincerely, and the same with our souls. We are also intellectual beings, and Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus Christ, calls us to mindful love. He calls us to intellectual love. Love with all your mind. The command sounds simple, but it requires from us a second simplicity, a simplicity that incorporates a good deal of complexity. So what does the command mean? To love God intellectually is to become a student of God. You know, if I can interject something here. I know many people who are students of the scriptures. 
They love the scriptures. They memorize the scriptures. They, they um, take notes on the scriptures. They teach the scriptures. And they're students of the scriptures. But they rarely talk about God. They're not students of God. It's like someone who studies and writes books about marriage but doesn't have a wife. We are to be students of God. Have you ever noticed, and this is, uh, this is why this article jumped out at me when I reread it uh, just a few days ago. Have you ever noticed that a fair number of Christians are not particularly interested in God? Some of them are ministers. These are people who don't ask about God, don't talk about God, and maybe don't even think about God, unless they really have to. Their interest in God seems merely professional. Isn't this strange? Shouldn't we be somewhat preoccupied with God? Lovers get preoccupied with their beloved. They notice things about the one they love. If you need to pause the teaching right now and just think about that, And seriously ask yourself, do you love God? Or you just love godly people? Do you really love God? Or you just like hanging around in church or your synagogue and and doing godly things with others? Do you really love God? Is he what preoccupies your mind day and night? Or as Amalek won, has he somehow seduced you into surrendering to where your fear of God is gone and your love of God with it? I started thinking about Yeshua's seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And three of these letters contain especially harsh rebukes. A couple of the letters don't contain rebuke, and a couple of the letters uh, have some correction and also some praise and some encouragement to them, but these three hold some very, very sharp rebuke. I'm not going to read all of the three letters, but I'm going to read an excerpt from each of the three. And you can read the entire context and the references you see on the screen. But the first one is to Ephesus. This is the same uh, community to whom Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. And this is what he says to the community at Ephesus. He says, but I have this against you that you abandoned your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So what was Ephesus' problem? Ephesus's that's a hard one to say. They left their first love. And who is the first love? That would be God, Messiah. They loved him. They loved him at one time. 
But things cooled over time. Maybe they got distracted like many people do in their marriages. What starts out as red-hot love for that husband, for that wife, cools into just a business arrangement, taking care of kids, doing work, and, and keeping the house clean and maintained. And the passion's gone. And Yeshua rebukes the community of Ephesus because they left their first love. And twice, twice, he tells them to repent. He mentions the word repent two times. But we go down to the fifth letter, the letter to Sardis. We have the second sharp rebuke from Yeshua. To Sardis, he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. The community at Sardis, even though they looked alive, lots of activity, they're spiritually dead. They weren't always dead, but now they are. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So this time, we see repent mentioned once. And then, of course, there's the community at Laodicea, the wealthiest of the seven communities. And here's what Yeshua says to them. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Oh, that you were either cold or hot. I'll take either one, Yeshua says. I'll take either cold or I'll take hot. But because you are lukewarm, you are room temperature, and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You notice progression here? When you've left your first love, you start to die. And when you're dead, what's your temperature? What's the temperature of a corpse? Room temperature. But let's go on and see what else he says. Since you're neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now think about that for a minute. How could somebody who is poor and blind and pitiable and naked and wretched, how could such a person for one single moment think that they are rich and prosperous and have need of nothing? It's because they're dead. It's because they are blind. And in their imaginations, they think one thing when reality is something completely different. Amalek had defeated the community at Laodicea. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself 
and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous, be hot, he's saying, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And again, we see the word repent. You know that in the apostolic scriptures, the word repent is applied to believers. And I'm not sure that it's ever applied to non-believers. It may be. But all the places I come across and that I can think of where we are told to repent, it's us. It's the believers, the Christians, the church. We're told to repent. Turn around. You're going the wrong way. You've allowed Amalek to attack. You've been surrendering to him. You see, we have two choices. We have two choices, just two. Here they are. Choice A is to defeat Amalek every day, every moment. Choice B is surrender. And how do you tell the difference? A person who does things their way, they're following Amalek. Amalek are people of the flesh, the people of licking up. And you know whose ancestor Amalek, uh, who Amalek are the descendants of, who their ancestor is? Esau. They're descendants of Esau. The Israelites are descendants of Jacob. You know the story. Esau and Jacob were twin brothers. And in their mother, Rebekah's womb, they wrestled. They were wrestling together in her womb. And she goes to God and says, what's going on in me? He says, there are two peoples inside of you. And they're against each other. And they're going to war against each other. And so here in the Torah, we see the descendants of Jacob, Israel, and the descendants of Esau, Amalek, at war. And that warfare goes on inside of every one of us, unless we've surrendered. And when you give in to Amalek and surrender to him, things get real easy. You don't have to worry about obeying God. You do those things God says if they agree with what you want. But when you fight Amalek, it means you do the things God says even when you don't want. In Yeshua, we see his battle against Amalek come into sharp focus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows the Father has called him to go to the cross. Yeshua did not want to do that. Who would? And he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. I dread this. There's nothing in me that wants this. But Yeshua's war there in the garden was not against God. It was against Amalek. And Yeshua won. Thank God he won. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's what defeat of Amalek looks like. 
defeat of Amalek is taking up your cross. And the way you defeat Amalek, the way you defeat the flesh, is pictured by Yeshua on the cross, where his hands are nailed to the cross. And you say, my flesh wants to use my hands to do such and such, but Father, I'm not letting Amalek use my hands. You get my hands. Taking up your cross means the feet of Amalek are nailed to that cross. Father, I want to walk a certain way, a certain path, but I'm putting that aside. My feet belong to you. Where do you want me to go? When you see Yeshua on the cross, you see the crown of thorns piercing his, his head. And when you see that, you do war against Amalek because you say, Father, I know what I want. I know what I'm thinking, but Father, I want your thoughts. I want to set aside my many opinions. And Lord, I want your truth. And I don't want to walk in what I think. I don't want to do what's right in my eyes. I want to do what's right in yours. And when you see Yeshua's side pierced, you're saying, Father, I don't want a heart of Amalek where I follow my own heart. But I want to father, follow your great heart. And if you truly want to, to defeat Amalek, then you're in a position to respect others because you have a fear of God. But it's a constant war. You know, some people think they keep the Torah because they, they have a beard and wear tzitzit and don't eat pork. Well, corpses can have a beard and tzitzit and not eat pork as well. There's still a corpse. But to truly keep the Torah, you must have a passion for God. You must have a passion for God. And that's what Yeshua is all about, wanting people to love God. On the way over here, Robin and I were talking about the rich young ruler and what an example of the battle of Amalek he is. He comes to Yeshua, says, what must I do? What good thing must I do to inherit Chayolam? You know, this, this kind of life that I see in you. And Yeshua told him something he did not want to hear. He says, well, in your case, you have to go sell everything, give to the poor, then come follow me. And it says that, that that young man went away sorrowful. He was battling Amalek and losing, and he was miserable. People who surrender to Amalek, their lives may be easy in many ways, but they're wretched, miserable lives. They're people who are spiritually naked, people who are spiritually blind. They're people who spiritually are to be pitied. I don't want to be one of those. I don't want you to be one either. I'm challenging you. Defeat Amalek. Defeat the hunger that this stuff has to do what God desires. Because there are two warring sets of desires. There's the desires of Amalek in your life. 
and there's the desires of God. I want you to read something that I think is profound. I'm going to skip the Galatians passage just for a moment and go to Romans. Galatians or Romans, uh, and Romans are both written by Paul. But um, Galatians is a shorter book, and Romans is a longer book, but Romans says basically all the same things as Galatians, but just it's more thought out. Paul was kind of ticked when he wrote Galatians, and he'd calm down when he wrote Romans. But I want you to look at this. Romans 8, there's a wonderful chapter to memorize. Verses 5 to 7, For those who live according to the flesh, those who surrender to Amalek, set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's what they think about. They think that's normal. But those who live according to the Spirit, these are the non-fleshly things, the non-physical things, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They're spiritually minded. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit, you get two things life, and peace. Now look at what I put in bold here. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's Torah. Indeed, it cannot. It can't. And yet, there are many people who think they are Torah observant, but they're fleshly minded. They're caught up with all the the things of Torah, the outward appearances of Torah, with the accoutrements of Torah, with, with all the externalities of Torah. And all those things are wonderful and beautiful and good. Don't get me wrong. But it's all just external. They don't have a love for God. They don't have a fear of God. There's not a passion for God. Their souls don't pant after God. And they've surrendered to Amalek. You know, I believe that, and I've said it before, and I've said it again, and my friend at breakfast yesterday, he said the same thing. He says, he's a year older than me, so we've both been around a while. And over our uh, seven decades of life, there's something different now than all the years before. We both sense it. And he used the same terms that I do a shaking going on. The darkness, the spiritual, spiritually dark tone of these days is unique. Maybe in World War II there was a similar thing, but I think that was over and contained just over in Europe and in the South Pacific where war is taking place. But in the States, people were very alive. People were very strong and they were united and they were drawing close to God. But this is different. This is different. And in these dark days, the temptation is always going to be fear and anger. Fear and anger. And people who surrender to Amalek will be filled with fear, anxiety, worry. And these things always cause anger. Again, our greatest enemy is not the culture or COVID or China or politicians or anything else. Our biggest danger is Amalek. That's where our war is. So, our choice is again, we can defeat Amalek by walking in the Spirit, doing what is not fleshly, or we can surrender to Amalek 
and walk in the flesh. In other words, do what you want. Do what's right in your own eyes. That's what Amalek did. And when you surrender to Amalek, that is your mode for existence. And you may call yourself a Christian. You may call yourself a believer. But you've left your first love, if you ever loved God. You've become spiritually dead. And now you're lukewarm. And you're just about to become Jesus vomit. I don't want to be Jesus vomit. I want to be one he holds in his heart, not one that he throws up out of his mouth. It's strong language he's using, but it's his language. It's not mine. And I want to challenge you, in these dark days, love God. Love one another. Fear God. Respect one another. But you can only do that if you are carrying on a constant war with Amalek. Remember, these 70-plus commandments, this Torah portion, are bookended with war talk. And we can't do what's in the middle unless we are like Moses, holding on to that staff, lifting up that staff. And we are faithful. It says his, uh, he had help from Aaron and Hur to hold up his hands, so his hands remained amuna, faithful. And we have to be faithful if we're going to defeat Amalek. Look at Galatians 5, 13 to 17. Amazing passage. He says, For you were called to freedom. God wants us to be free. He's called us to freedom. And I'm sorry that my, my uh, circles turned into squares. There we go. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for what? The flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole Torah is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the what? The spirit, not the flesh, the spirit. Because these two are opposites. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. You notice the same kind of repetitions as you saw in the Romans passage? But look at this last phrase. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now think about this. And I know this applies to many of you who are listening to this right now. In your spirit, there are things you want to do for God. You want to serve him. You want to please him. You want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You want to be an encouragement to others. You want to serve. You want to follow the scriptures. You want these things, but you don't do them. You can't do them because you've surrendered to Amalek. And that's the source of your misery. Right there. You want to do right but you haven't taken up your sword against Amalek. You got tired of the battle, and you thought it'd just be easier to go back to Egypt to eat the free food 
to eat the flesh. Instead of walking in the Spirit, moving forward, living on the manna, and coming into my destiny that God has designed for me and appointed for me. I want you to do what deep in your spirit you want. I want you to fulfill the desires that God has put there. But peace doesn't come through surrender and it doesn't come through compromise. Peace comes only through victory. Only through victory. Remember Phineas? Back at the end of the book of Numbers, the plague is coming through the camp because of the children of Israel got defeated by Amalek again. They give in to their fleshly desires and they're committing uh, gross sin with the women of, of uh, Moab. And Phineas takes a spear and he goes up to the couple who are sinning right in front of the tabernacle. And he runs it through them into the ground and the plague stops. Boom, stops. And then God says of Phineas, he praises him, says, I will give him my, my brit shalom, my covenant of peace. Peace comes through victory, not through compromise and never through surrender, unless it's the enemy surrendering to us. Last week, I ended with an appeal and some directions about how we can share the gospel, the good news with others. And so I want to end this week's teaching on a similar tone, and we've read very little from our Torah portion, but when you've got over 70 commandments, 31 different topics, where do you even start? Well, we're going to uh, home in on just one. In chapter 22... It says in the first verse, You shall not see the ox of your brother or his sheep or goat cast off and hide yourself from them. You shall surely return them to your brother. Think about that. You see a sheep, you know who it belongs to, but you hide yourself from the sheep. You see an ox, you know who it belongs to, but you hide yourself. I don't want to be bothered with that. God says, no, 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 no. And if you fight Amalek and win, you're going to do the right thing. You're going to go out of your way. You're going to interrupt your schedule for the day. You're going to take that ox or that sheep or that goat. And you shall re surely return them to your brother. If your brother is not near you and you do not know him, then gather it inside your house. Looks like theft, but it's not. You take it into your house, and it shall remain with you until your brother inquires after it, and you return it to him. In other words, you have to... Take care of this thing, and you have to feed it. You've got to put some expense into this. Amalek says, don't be bothered with that. That's not good business sense. What a waste of time. You can hardly afford to feed your own cattle. You're going to take care of something that belongs to somebody else, someone's cattle you don't even own. So shall you do for his donkey, so shall you do for his garment, so shall you do for any lost article of your brother that may become lost from him, and you find it. You shall not hide yourself. Isn't that interesting? When you don't fulfill a commandment of God, especially in this context, you're hiding yourself. You're hiding yourself away from what God wants. Robbins has been reading a book that is a, a commentary on the various Torah portions. It's called Yemimi Mitzraki Speaks. 
It's written by Yamimi Mitsuraki. And in this book, she speaks. So, good title, huh? And this is a, a short portion I want to read to you about this passage in Deuteronomy 22. She says, in, in Parshat Kitetse, we read that if a person finds an object that belongs to someone else, he has an obligation to keep it in his possession, until your brother seeks it. Commenting on this verse, the Orachayim notes something profound. We are the lost objects of Hashem, he says. We went missing and Hashem is searching for us. It is as if Hashem is saying, where is he? Where is she? If you recall, the very first question God ever asked in the scriptures is, Adam, where are you? He's seeking Adam. But anyway, she continues. The precise words of the Torah are, Ve'im lo karov alecha. And if your brother is not near you or you don't know him, then bring it, the lost object, inside your house. And adro shakhecha oso until your brother seeks it. The commandment we receive in this passage is not only about mere possessions that somehow end up in our property. It's an obligation regarding the lost children of Hashem. If a child of Hashem, his precious possession is not near him, take him under your wing. Take the lost neshama, the lost soul, to a place where he will seek Hashem, and where Hashem will find him. The month of Elul, which I talked about last week, is the time of year when we all must seek Hashem. Seek Hashem, seek Adonai when he can be found. That's what Isaiah 55, 6 says. Seek Adonai when he can be found. This is the time when he is close to us, when we aren't far from where we belong. When you say the words, Hashivenu avinu lefanecha, return us, our Father, to you in the Shemona Ezra, do you really feel that longing to return to Hashem? You are the precious lost child for whom he's searching. There was a, a book, I forget the author's name, but a rabbi wrote called God in Search of Man. And Yeshua in Luke says that uh, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. God is in seeking mode. Yeshua is in search mode for the people and the things that are lost. And we're in a position to take a brother or sister under our wing until the, their owner comes to find them. And so as you take the gospel to people around you, as you pray that prayer, Father, who needs me? Look for a lost soul who you need to take under your wing until God finds him. So, discussion questions. Read and discuss the battle against Amalek. That's in Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16. We can either surrender to Amalek or defeat him. What does surrender to Amalek look like? What does defeat of Amalek look like? 
Think of an incident in your own life when your flesh wanted one thing and you knew that God wanted another. How did things turn out? And if it's appropriate, share this with your group. And why were the Israelites to be kind to Egypt, but not to Amalek? And I want to close with that quote, which I fumbled over earlier, and it's in your notes. When what we don't have becomes something real in our minds, then what we do have becomes nothing in our eyes. That's something worth memorizing. So with that, let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, we thank you so much for your wise words of your Torah, brilliant words, timeless words, eternal words. But Father, for us to take these words in and have them live on our hearts and minds and our actions, we must maintain a constant vigilant war against Amalek. only to discover that Amalek is what I want. Amalek is my desires. Amalek is doing what's right in my eyes. Amalek is what my flesh wants to lick up. Oh God, deliver us from ourselves. Set us free from the slavery to Amalek so we can walk in victory. And we can walk in real, true fear and love of you and true love and respect for our brothers and sisters. But if we surrender to Amalek, we will not be able to fear you. And we will never respect and love our brothers and sisters. So Lord, make us the people you want us to be, the people this dark world needs right now people who love you passionately and love one another as we love ourselves. Make us those kinds of people, Father, and do not spew us out of your mouth. I ask in Yeshua's name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.